Good morning and welcome to another episode of Isle of Faces, Scraps and Scrolls. This time we are part six, halfway through Clash of Kings, I think. Close enough. I am Sir Buckley, I am talking to you from a rather lovely autumn England. Leaves are brown, the sun is still out and the mud is high on my shoes. Firstly, some good news. As you can tell, maybe, probably not, my cough has gone. Well, the sore throat has gone. Unfortunately, didn't go through a kind of Bran, Jojen Reed experience where I got really ill and then somehow better. I'm afraid my voice is still the same level it was before, so apologies there. Other news before we begin, happy birthday to us here at the Isle of Faces. As I sit here recording on a Wednesday morning, the 6th of November, we're exactly one year from the first episode of Isle of Faces coming out with the good old boys from Davos Fingers. So, hooray, we made it a year somehow, and we've probably not lost too many of you. I hope not, anyway. We've certainly gained more than that I thought we would. And like I said last week, if I find some time, if, don't hold me to anything, I swear, no oaths, if I find some time, I'll do a quick half an hour uh, year in review and talk about all the things that have happened and have not happened, and maybe shall happen. Yeah, one of those about the Isle of Faces and the year and uh, how fun it's been and how lucky I've been to talk to you all. Other news before we begin, if you happen to be addicted to my Twitter feed, as I'm sure you all are, uh, you will have seen yesterday I made a rather big announcement in that I've finished the writing of the Castles book. I will now pause for cheer and merriment. Yes, finish the main writing. Now, do not misunderstand me. I do not mean the book is complete. I mean I have uh, put all the information and now I have to go back and edit and uh, clarify and rearrange. So not done yet. Lots of work to go, but uh, a big milestone. And as you would have seen on Twitter yesterday, very emotional uh, for me. A lot of work has gone in, especially in the last uh, last little bit of time. A little bit sleep deprived. Hadn't been eating much, uh, it was a little bit off my head, but got there in the end. Uh, that last chapter especially, <laughs> like 40,000 words in two weeks, so it was a bit of a stretch. But, like I say, got there in the end. Yes, very exciting. Announcements will come, don't you worry about that. I will be flooding my Twitter with uh, when more information is available. So if you're interested in that, uh, please do follow and just keep your, keep your ears up because I'll be telling you more shortly. And um, really, truly, honestly, thank you to everyone for the support and kind words, not just yesterday, but during the whole process. People know who you are, but lots of uh, people, new people, lots of new followers, lots of uh, likes I didn't recognise yesterday. People asking for the book, people interested in the book, and I probably don't need to explain what that means to me if you've ever created something and someone has said something nice about it or shown any interest so thank you thank you thank you again for yesterday um there is more to come and when it does i will announce it here too but not today not today we have things to do like i say we are halfway through clash of kings we're right into the heart of it this is part six so let me tell you about the six chapters we have today we have Bran 4, the one where Jojen gets all kooky and spooky and all about the wolf dreams. We have Tyrion 7, the Lancel chapter, I like to call it, where Lancel kind of gets used and abused by everyone, so not not great for Lancel, but still. We have Aya 7, where Jack and Agar starts killing folk for fun, so that's good. 
We have Catelyn Free, who's the one of Stannis and Renly's little uh, chit chat before the battle. Good one, I'm sure you remember. Sansa Free, where Sansa has a, a, a bad, rough time of it. I don't, yeah, that could be any Sansa chapter, true, but a rougher time of it where she gets beaten in front of everyone. Mm, not great. And finally, Catelyn Four, goodbye, Renly. All I need to say about that one. So two Catelyn chapters today, so you know I'm happy because I always uh, like a good Catelyn chapter. But other than that, quite a varied day. We've got lots of different locations, lots of different goings on. So let's get right into it then, shall we? We're going to start with Bran 4. We're going to Winterfell. And there are problems in the castle and outside the castle. But the outside ones, they're probably worse, even if Bran doesn't quite realise it yet. We were starting to learn about... If you remember last week, it was the harvest feast. It was the kind of <laughs> the last happy time at Winterfell, really, of all the, the gathering of the Northern Lords. And as soon as it's over, poor Donella Hornwood, she goes home. Well, except she doesn't. She doesn't make it. Ramsay grabs her, and that's the beginning of her horrible experience. Luckily, Bran has spared the worst of the details, for now at least. But um, yes, Ramsay is rising just about the same time as the Ironborn are about to come. So it's a real... Uh, unlucky situation for Winterfell and everyone in but knowing what we know of what's coming with Ramsay it's uh, creepy and quite foreboding to just see these seeds being set before we even know what he's really like. Now if we look if we want to look at our maps if we want to think of the political situation in the north at the moment if you look at how much land the Boltons gain by taking the Hornwood lands and how much they encroach on the Mandalays it's not really any surprise that Wyman uh, has reacted, and that's what that's what drawn Roderick Cassell off because Wyman has reacted to Donella being kidnapped. So now that he's got them fighting, but not surprising from Wyman really because that is a very aggressive move. That's not like oh, okay, we'll take the Hornwood. She's got like uh, you know a keep and a meal and a couple of fields. This is a big part of land, and it's a big movement towards the Mandalays, and obviously they don't get on. So not good. And this whole thing, it's really the beginning of the weakening of the name of Stark. We know what a big deal it is to everyone that Rob can't defend his home, in, in theory. And that whole idea that you've got to protect yours first. And we also have, you know, the little man in Storm of Swords saying about what you can do when the Stark, Starks are in Winterfell. And every, everyone knows that the Starks will, will not stand for any kind of misbehaviour. But they're not here. And this is a situation that calls for Starks. If this had happened a year or two ago, it would have been Ned riding out and no one would have tried any of this rubbish. No one's that stupid. But there aren't enough Starks, so Roderick has to go and do it. And all fairness to Roderick, he, he's more than capable, but it's just not the same. And it's that optics that are starting to fail for the Starks. And again, just the last thing, this Ramsay uh, bit. This seems calculated enough. It makes me wonder whether Roos departed with instructions to do this before he left. That might be a bit of a stretch. Obviously, he wouldn't have known that Donella Horn would, would end up in this exact situation given her, given her husband and son's deaths, but he could have been leaving instructions just to take advantage of the situation, basically. But almost certainly he's sending stuff back from the South. I would think, anyway. I don't think this is total Ramsey. The details and the, the nature of it Yes, but not uh, complete, completely Ramsay. So the the crux of this chapter is Jojen talking to Bran about wolf dreams and green sight and just opening up this world. He's the anti-Lewin, is Jojen. Bran's, he's got a few hints from Osher. He's obviously got his own dreams. But other than that, he's got no real support for his own 
powers and dreams and stuff. And he's just got Lewin in his face saying, no, that, that's not right, Bran, that's not happening. Well, now we've got the opposite. Now we've got someone who knows his stuff and is really pushing the agenda. And we actually get the first hint that Bran is not the only child who was ill or near death or whatever and then gained powers. We learn that happened to Jojen too. So now we get this little bit of a pattern that doesn't mean much at the moment, but later on, when we meet Euron, we get to form a bit of a chain. And that links us back to that big pile of bones and skulls that Bran saw in his original Three-Eyed Crow dream in Bran 3 in the Game of Thrones. So everything is starting to link together. And it's not surprising that this arrival of Jojen and more knowledge links up with a real shift in Bran's power. He's he powered up. He's gone to Super Saiyan. Or he's on his way anyway. He can now experience dreams in the day. He can be in summer and in himself at the same time. And I'd actually forgot about that, that he kind of has that dual um, like vision. One eye's Bran, one eye's summer. It, it doesn't use that as much later on, I'm sure. And we also see summer really acting out Bran's frustrations and showing that the link goes both ways. And that's when Jojen's ideas get a bit too big for Bran's head at the moment. He can't handle all of it and Summer acts out instead of Bran. We got a little bit about Lewin, I think, as he's got to most of my stuff on Lewin. He's a, a big character in this chapter. And I think he's kind of, he knows maybe that his argument's starting to wear thin because he doesn't want to acknowledge that Bran and Rickon had the same dream about Ned's death. He just brushes it off. And then he kind of goes through this list of um, what does exist and what doesn't. And he's actually unbeknownst to him obviously it's not his fault but he's actually kind of wrong on every mark so it just makes you feel a little uh, pity for Lewin but I do love his backstory as he's got to now Bran he says he still thinks John is at the wall and obviously John's not he's gone north now so I wonder if Winterfell are ever informed about the great ranging I don't remember well obviously they've got their own problems coming soon enough so they're not going to sit around and talk about Castle Black but I don't remember Lewin or Roger ever just mentioning that the ranging have gone off perhaps word came after the castle was burned but that seems way too late it's not that far for a raven to come from castle black and you'd think it'd make sense for castle black to tell winterfell seeing as they are one specifically looking for a member of house starkler looking for benjen so you'd think they might want to just tell someone about that and also they are severely weakening the main defense of the realm let's just say they went off north and a, a great big bunch of wildlings happened to be hiding behind a bush and climbed over the wall while they're all away Winterfell is going to be the people who have to deal with that so you might just want to say hey just be on your toes not that it would have mattered because Winterfell wouldn't be able to help anyway but heads up might have been nice final note for this chap Bran he asks this question he said to Mira he says did your master at arms teach you net fighting if you remember Mira really does a number on summer with her net in this chapter and she replies no my father taught me so that's nice to know that Howland Reed has kept up his skills over the years. He's uh, still good at the net. And I wonder, if it, is there an outside chance he used a net to save uh, Ned from Arthur Dane? I don't know if he would have carried his net all the way down south of him, but you never know. Certainly Arthur Dane probably wasn't used to fighting nets, so it's an outside possibility. Okay, moving on today, we're going to try and get a quick episode, because like I said, i got a lot to do with that castle's book. Anyway, Tyrion 7... The Lancel chapter. Tyrion, he welcomes Lancel into his room in the middle of the night. Lancel th kind of thinks he's cock of the walk. He very quickly finds out he is not and he just kind of gets destroyed politically and mentally by Tyrion and he ends up working for Tyrion and Cersei and uh, poor Lancel. And in fairness to him, it's not that Lancel is even, he's not particularly stupid. He's not even a, like a, a bad guy. Okay, He has done bad things and he is a little bit stupid but he's also like 16 
He's just a normal teenager. He's way in way over his head, and he's just not going to realise it until he's at a real battle. But he probably does start getting hints here of being out of his depth. And he might have even tried to get out a bit if Tyrion and you know, dragged him back in. Tyrion really keeps him in the game because he knows he can use him. He knows his weaknesses. And we can probably ter- uh, trace Lancel's eventual turn to the faith and abandonment of the family name back to these first few moments of clarity. Although I would say that what Cersei does to him in the Blackwater is uh, a lot worse and probably he remembers that a lot more when switching over to the faith. Aziz, he talked about uh, Lancel enough for us, so I'm going to switch over to Tyrion. And Tyrion, he's really living his best life in these kind of mid, mid-Clash mid of Kings chapters, isn't he? We've had the Pycelle chapter, we've had him sitting on the Iron Throne, he's dancing around Lancel here. He's got it all spread out before him, he's more than happy. But because we're rereading and we know what's going to come later, we can see seeds for his eventual downfall especially if we're looking towards his trial in Storm of Swords. And I think I said this last couple of weeks. He's flying high, but George is clever enough to just sprinkle some breadcrumbs that are going to lead him all the way back down low soon enough. And we have one of these here in his releasing of Pycelle. Alone, Pycelle can't really touch Tyrion, especially as things are. Tyrion, he can't see any kind of threat coming from the old frail man who no one really likes and isn't actually very good at his job and stuff like that. But he's not considering the whole picture. He's not considering how quickly things can change, which he probably should be thinking about considering what's happened to Ned not very long ago. Things can change on a dime, as he will find out later. Because once Pycelle joins up with other members and starts uh, linking with House Lannister again, once things begin to change, he obviously has a very strong dislike for Tyrion and he can use it, as he does in the trial. Tyrion just can't see the danger around him, unfortunately. Speaking of, let me read you another quote from Tyrion. He's thinking this. I'm free of Tysha now, he thought. I have Shay now. Shay. And again, I was never a fan of these endings of um, Tyrion chapters. It seemed like it always ended with another visit to Shay. And I didn't like reading it first through. And I can't say I do that much now, but I do see the worth in it. Because as we spoke about a lot with Shay's introduction in Game of Thrones, Tyrion, he just point-blank refuses to recognise that he is just using Shay as a tighter substitute. And now he seems to be generally believing Shay as something different, immediately after reminding himself that Tysha was, in his mind, a, a sex worker. It's marvellous self-delusion, and he's it's a real just opposite to this victory and success he's having at the moment. And he still just can't rid himself of Taisha, really, it just does not leave him. Even if he never says, like, directly outright, because George doesn't need him to, that, hey, I'm still messed up about Taisha. It's clear he is, and it's clear that he he does know, he just can't face it, and he can't face putting Shay in that category, because the memories are just too painful. It's awful to read, and, again, knowing what we know, well, Pycelle's the least of his worries, really, isn't it? Okay, that's that for Tyrion chapter. We're going to whiz through today. We're on to Aya 7. Aya 7? Yes, Aya 7. With uh, Jack and the Gar's return. Now, I'm, I think as he's got to my note about Aya actually having a kind of better situation in Harrenhal, weirdly, as is to say. But there is also a contrast to that because we have to remember who's actually there with her. Even if she's not in the line of fire, so to speak, at the moment. She is surrounded by the Bloody Mummers, who seems to be the worst collection of people in the universe. Until you remember who Gregor has with him, who are also there. Just all those people around this poor ten-year-old girl. Well, it makes the mind boggle, and obviously we get evidence of that with 
Chiswick story and uh, all that, which I won't go into because I don't think any of us want to relive that particular story. Um, I will just say for all the, all the terrible tragedies and f- falls in this plot throughout all these books, this thing that happens to characters that we never hear of or see again, it's, it, it sticks with you regardless. But anyway, the only thing we can't do is really ignore the effect it has on Aya. Um, it really it hunches down deep in Aya's soul and not only moves her forward in the immediate with asking Jacques and Agar for deaths, but it is still present in her motivation in Bravos and probably into Winds and beyond. People question what I will become, but we really only have to look back to this story and understand exactly why she does what, what she does later on. And we should probably cheer her on for it. She is dealing out deserved justice. Now, as he's also mentioned about uh, I meeting Northerners, and I, I had actually forgotten that she meets them here, but the potential problem of Aya not being recognised, I've, I've always found that fascinating, and we're going to see similar problems coming up later with Jane Poole acting as Aya, funnily enough, and uh, Young Griff also, and how you prove that you are who you are, for, for people don't recognise you, or there aren't photos and pictures. And it's just weird to think, because if we look at our own... Uh, looks and identity we take it for granted we live in a photo filled world where of course I can easily prove who I am I have a you know ID and there's hundreds of people who know me etc etc we've got the internet but that obviously doesn't exist here and it's just a weird kind of mini issue that is actually a huge issue when you think about it something that would not occur to us and probably wouldn't have occurred to Aya because she grew up in Winterfell where everyone knew who she was so we can really combine that with her later troubles with losing identity and losing herself and so we see that here she's not Aya here or even if she is it doesn't matter because she can't prove it so later on when she also isn't Aya it really links up just imagine what could have changed if a northerner had recognized her and somehow managed to inform Rob or Catelyn about it later I like to dream about what Rob and Catelyn would have done to the Riverlands just to get Aya back if they knew she was out there somewhere if they would have just dropped everything rode out and found her one can dream. Alas, alarm, alas, alarm. Now, let's talk about Jacques and Agar. Because now we finally get the third of our big religious inputs for the book. If you remember, right at the beginning, spoke about how religion is a much bigger factor in this book than it is Game of Thrones. We get the introduction of Melisandre and R'hllor. We get Aaron Greyjoy going about the Drowned God. And we get Jacques and Agar talking about the Many-Faced God. Even if he says he says Red God in this chapter, and uh, that was probably a bit confusing on first reread, his uh, views on R'hllor and who he's actually serving. But there we go. We know now. So, yes, we get... That's the third introduction. And, and he doesn't hang around too long, the Many-Faced God, in this chapter. We're going to come... Uh, this book, even. We're going to come back to him later. Not as big an influence as R'hllor, obviously, but very interesting that we've get, got that now. And I really love that Aya connects the use of an assassin and the use of Jack and Agar as dishonourable, as bad, because Ned would have just done the deed herself, deed himself. So she thinks she should as well. And to be fair, she's going to do plenty of sentence passing later on. And But that combined with her initial distrust and her testing of Jack and which is just really smart. It reminds me of something that Sansa would be able to do, just using, just test him and see what, what's what about Jack and you can see why she's doing that because of Jacqueline working for the Lannisters and everything. So it's a really smart move on Aya's part. I do wonder if Jacqueline Agar ever noticed any water dancer training in Aya, whether it's just in her stance or how she carries herself. Even right back at the beginning of the book when she fights Hot Pie. I just wonder if anything gets across because it is Provosi-based style 
and we know where Jack Nagar has been for a lot of the time, assumedly, and he's obviously interested in different forms of fighting, so that's just interesting to to wonder there. So, oh yeah, she adds Weiss to her list. I think it's Weiss. Abusive, like, steward guy that she works for. And I think he's actually the last name ever added. I, try, I tried to go through it in my head. I couldn't remember anyone after. Obviously on the show she adds, like, Beric and Forrest and but not not in the books, I'm pretty sure. And I just wouldn't have guessed that the name adding ended this early. I guess she, she's got more than enough on there. But when we're looking at the overall picture, Ira at Harrenhal still seems so early in the in the story. So, uh, yeah, it's just weird to think about that. Speaking of the list and names, she specifically doesn't want to know the names of those around her. And I'm talking about like her fellow workers and stuff. Because it makes it hurt more when they die. And again... This speaks so much to the importance of adding names to a list, but also Aya's ever-changing names and her personal identity, which is obviously related to those names. She really gets into a period of changing names every day, and it, again, we can see those seeds here that she doesn't want to be tied to names because names can hurt you, and that's obviously what she's learnt later on. So we do get a little bit of a reminder of exactly how screwed Tywin is at this moment, so that's always fun to talk about. He's Really got multiple enemies on basically every side now. He's got Roos to the north, Rob to the west, Renly to the south, Stannis to the east, Tyrion... Uh, not Tyrion to the east, obviously. That's a... Uh, Tyrion's on his side still. But, yeah, he, he's in trouble. And it's mixed really well with the stories of yet another enemy. One they simply can't find a way to deal with. The one that's growing right under their feet in the Brotherhood Without Banners. So Tyrion's... Um, Ty, Tywin, not Tyrion. Tywin is staying still, he's not moving towards any of these enemies, and he's still in trouble because there's another one growing around him. And I just like to highlight when Tywin's being rubbish, which is a lot of the time. Now, so I've also never picked up on the fact that just a few chapters before Renly is killed by like straight-up magic, we have Jacques and Nagar essentially offering the same service to Aya. It's really the same thing that Melisandre is um, offering to Stannis. Not quite, because one's a shadow and one is an actual human, but it ends up with the same result. And yeah, I hadn't made that connection before. It's a real big hint that like, hey, people can die really surprisingly, even when you think they shouldn't, even if fire doesn't use it. It's uh, for as big of a, a reaction. Yeah, George is telling us, hey, watch what I can do. And then he does it with Melisandre and the Shadow Assassin later. Lastly, for this chapter. So in this extreme period of harshness, where any power has been taken from her and she's come crashing down from the life of a noble to someone who gets beaten for yawning. Yeah, that's how bad it's got for Arya. She finally grabs onto a feeling of confidence and being able to affect her world, some, being able to affect her world, being able to affect something by the power and thrill she gets from Jacques and Agar paying out. She says this thing, Jacques does it, end result. And she's learned how it feels and she likes it and she is going to do it again. She's going to affect that world again through the same avenue. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. Hooray, it's time for Catelyn. It's Catelyn 3. Always love a Catelyn chapter. So yes, this is the one where Renly and Stannis have a, a parlay. If you want to call it that, you could just call it an argument or a bratty squabble, if you like. That's also accurate. And Catelyn, she just kind of has to witness a little bit and sigh and resign herself and if you've ever worked in a school or if you're a parent or if you've just ever had two kids who don't need to be arguing but insist on arguing and you know how frustrating it is that is Catelyn in this chapter and this little parlay thing is really the last bubble that leads to 
the war advancing to the next stage. We have this little kind of dancing around each other. Okay, Tywin and Rob, they've fought a bit, but not so far in this book. And then that, that stage is over after this. First, there is actual bloodshed between Renly and Stannis' forces, and then Stannis is on the move to King's Landing. We've got to the next stage of the war because of this bubble bursting. You combine that with Theon getting back north, Rob heading west, and we can see the time for words in this particular clash is fading fast. We've had the first half with politics and like that dance. That's over now. Now people are moving. So Stannis, he says he doesn't want to sully Lightbringer with a brother's blood. And I wonder, is Stannis forgetting his, uh, his Lightbringer story there a bit? Is he forgetting Melisandre's lessons about how Lightbringer is forged? It's supposed to have a family's blood on it. but So it's got me thinking about his mindset, really. Has he forgot the story, or does he just consider kinslaying applies only to those of your own blood? Maybe he doesn't think that Lightbringer is a kinslaying sword, because Nissa Nissa wouldn't have been a blood relation. She would have been a relationship in marriage. So maybe he doesn't think that was that bad. But he doesn't want to stain it with the kinslaying curse. Okay, possibly. But then that gets me thinking about it. It wouldn't surprise me at all if the Westerosi didn't believe that wife beating or killing is true kinslaying. Because either because of blood, you don't share any blood. Or because they simply don't value wives as much as they do brothers. And it got me straight away, it doomed me along to Victorian's thinking. He's always going on about the kinslayer curse and he can't move against Euron. Yet he beat his own wife to death. I'm pretty sure I remember that correctly. He beat his own wife to death. Yeah, that's right. And so, but he doesn't consider that kinslaying. I'm assuming it is because of the blood, but it's just, yeah, not a great indictment on men's thinking in the value of women in, in this world. Yeah, not great, everybody. Anyway, like I say, it is very easily to easy to relate to Catelyn's frustration here. There are very clear paths to victory and glory for all. They could have worked it out. We should be clear on that. They could have worked something out if they really wanted to. But the stupid, dunderheaded pride is stopping any of them from doing that. And no one but Catelyn sees that she just can't take the blinkers off their eyes. And I'm not saying it's as easy as, okay, let's shake hands, we'll just go and take it, take King's Landing together and everything's fine. Of course not. There are two very powerful figures. They've got people behind them that are specifically backing them. The Tyrells don't want Stannis on the throne. Some of Stannis' lot don't want Renly on the throne, etc., but there were avenues to victory that they refused to take. And I actually always thought it was a shame, and we spoke about in Game of Thrones, if you remember, how powerful the Baratheon brothers would have been, like pre-Game of Thrones, if they had truly teamed up together and ruled King's Landing together. If they had just said, okay, Robert, we know what you're good at. Renly, we know what you're good at. Stannis, we know what you're good at. Let's all just do our things, but work together. They would have, they, that was, they would be fighting on all sides there. They would have really done well. But they wouldn't do that, of course, because of their personalities. And that's just on display here again. Not only would Renly and Stannis teaming up obviously give them more men than everyone else, but also after the war, they could have really worked well together because they are so different. I truly believe that. Each what has what the other one lacks, but neither of them would ever entertain that notion. It just wouldn't even occur to them. So that's a shame. Lastly, on this chapter, we're speeding through today. I've always thought it was a shame that there's no interaction between Melisandre and Catelyn, especially considering how Catelyn ends up as her own like quasi-magical type person. She ends up as Lady Stoneheart. I think as he's mentioned that it's the same magic, it's the same god that's keeping Lady Stoneheart alive that Melisandre serves. So it would have been really nice to just have a two, two words here. Maybe in the future, who knows, you could have it. Okay, on to Sansa 3. It's a rough old chapter to reread, Sansa 3. 
I will tell you why in a second. So first off, so Sansa, she's, she's going down to talk to Joffrey, which is always fun. And right at the beginning, we have this horrible image of a cat dying. Joffrey has shot a cat with a crossbow, because he's a dick. And this poor cat is just kind of mewling and dying softly on the ground. It's not. It, don't picture it, please. And it's a it's a golden cat, which is important, okay? Because if we want to take lions as cats, which they are, it clearly rela relates to Tywin's death. This golden cat dies via a crossbow bolt. Tywin, the golden lion, dies via a crossbow bolt. I think this poor, drawn-out death of this cat, it represents the long, drawn-out end of the Lannisters, brought about by one of their own. Joffrey has killed the cat. Joffrey, in many ways, kills off the, I was going to say franchise, it's the dynasty, isn't it? It's the family, not a franchise. It's not sports. Now, I also, I have to say, I stand corrected, because a few weeks ago, I said that Joffrey never orders Sandwalk again to hit Sansa, but he does here. I had forgot that, obviously. I was right at the time, but here he dares to ask. But we never find out if the Hound would have done it, because Dontos Hollard interjects, and it's actually kind of ballsy by Joffrey, because I wonder... We can't really give credit to Joffrey one way or the other, how, how smart he is, or if he's smart at all, does he notice things? Does he notice that Sandor again is kind of nice to Sansa? Would he have even been aware of that, or would he just be completely oblivious and just be sure that Sandor would have just obeyed him? I, I think maybe he did know a little bit, and this is actually kind of a ballsy move, and he's kind of testing Sandor again, but obviously, again, we don't get to find out. And zooming forward, Clegane brings this up later in his death scene, air quotes, death scene, with Aya and Storm of Swords. It is a, it's a great question whether he would have actually done it or not. It's really interesting. Now, the beating passage, by which I mean Joffrey ordering his Kingsguard to... Because, okay, Sandor doesn't get the chance, but I think it's Meryn Trant. I think it's Meryn. Might have been Boris. Meryn Trant does obey. He does beat Sansa with the flat of his sword. He does rip her dress in front of everyone. And it's really one of the darker reads in the whole series. It is intensely difficult to read. Um, yeah, and it's not just like, it's not one cuff. We've already had her being like punched in the stomach with a, a mailed fist, which I think I went about on about last week. That's not just one punch. This is enough blows with a sword, with a flat of the sword, that Sansa loses count. That's how many there are. And on top of that, she's getting stripped. The 13-year-old girl, whoever it is, is getting stripped in front of just a bunch of adult dudes watching on. It is atrociously hard to read. It, I won't go. I won't go into it too much. Sandor he kind of tries to speak up in fairness, but he's not going overboard to stop proceedings. He's really not doing anything to actually stop it. There's some major Jamie vibes in terms of Kingguard, Kingsguard, and others just watching as these atrocities are committed and not doing anything. And we've got to lay that at Sandal's feet, unfortunately. I do wonder if this is the moment where he's like, fuck this guy. When, when the opportunity comes to get out, I'm out, because this kid is loco. If this whole chapter combined, we get a lot of little notes about what he's up to with the small folk and the cat and what he does to Sansa. This chapter isn't the biggest. Joffrey is the worst chapter. I don't know what it is. I think this is the best evidence Maybe combined with the Ned thing, but you get a lot of it here. So basically, to sum up, if anyone still moans about Sansa, which you shouldn't be doing anyway, you idiots, if anyone still moans about Sansa after reading this chapter, you can get off our island and you can not come back. So this whole thing is a continuation of Sansa's education about material and looks and things being on the surface, because Tyrion is the one who comes and saves her. 
and okay Sandor and Tyrion they're definitely not Loras they do not look like Loras but they are here looking after when others aren't and Sandor he does he doesn't do a great job but he does get there he's at least second to Tyrion Tyrion does the best job Sandor is second although we shouldn't knock out Dontos either speaking of our last chapter Tyrion has a funny note here he thinks it would be a lot easier if Stannis and Renly were 12 year old girls and that's kind of how Catelyn views them when when they are when they met that last chapter she thinks of them as children becoming children and she's dead on now after this whole thing Sansa gets taken back to the Tower of the Hand to Tyrion's apartments and she wakes up as uh, one of Tyrion's um, clansmen or as actually a clanswoman in this instance it's probably Chella outside Sansa's door and obviously Sansa believes that to be another aspect of imprisonment but Tyrion actually placed her there for protection he's not trying to keep Sansa in he's trying to keep other people out but of course understandably Sansa doesn't see it that way at the moment now I've got two quotes from Tyrion just to end this chapter the first is I don't intend for you to marry Joffrey now I don't think we ever actually get confirmation of what Tyrion's plan for Sansa was pre being told to marry her himself he obviously had thought about it he didn't want her to marry Joffrey but we don't get any hints about what he planned to do with her if he had planned to marry her off to someone else or keep her close or whatever and to be fair, he might have just been trying to soothe her here. Maybe he hadn't thought about it, but knowing Tyrion, he probably had. And the last quote from this chapter is, from again from Tyrion to Sansa. He says, And far from any Lannisters, I can scarce blame you for that. When I was your age, I wanted the same thing. Hmm. When he was Sansa's age. So that would be around the time he was married to Tysha, I think. Am I right? Maybe just after. And you can imagine, yeah, I bet Tyrion wanted to be away from Lannisters after that whole nightmare. Who could blame him? Okay, moving on. It's our last chapter of the day. It is Catelyn 4. Lucky me, I get two Catelyn chapters to look at today. And i got to say, Catelyn 4, which is the one where Catelyn goes to the Sept. She has a bit of a prey. She goes to Renly's tent. There is much talking. And then Renly is killed. It's one of my favorite chapters in this whole book and i remember not on not rereading like now for this podcast but my actual reread before the valor readers came along a couple of months ago or probably last year sometime now i remember reading this chapter and really being knocked out by it especially the beginning i wouldn't have been able to tell if someone had asked me before then hey what is catelyn up to just before randy dies in her chapter couldn't be able to tell you but this sept reading i remember really really struck me this whole this just beginning of the chapter and annoyingly i remember i wrote down a load of stuff about it but i couldn't find it for this episode so i've had to kind of think again i might have thought the same thing i might have got some different stuff and aziz actually he got to my main note which is about brienne being so uh, deliberate and george really focusing in, in on the armor being put on and how uh, useless that is in the end so that was my main note and aziz got that one for me so thank you aziz so the chapter it opens with a heavy focus on the Seven, a religion that has not actually demonstrated any power so far. And again, in this book with these new religions, where we've seen Melisandre not be poisoned, where we've seen uh, Jacques Nagar kind of doing magic, godly stuff. And, uh, okay, we haven't seen the Drowned God do anything yet, but he's, he's around. We have really not seen anything from the Seven. And that's important because the chapter starts with the Seven, who don't show anything, and it ends with the power of the law and a really inarguable show of power from him and Melisandre. Okay, so we've got a quote from this 
uh, time in the sept from Catelyn. It says, The warrior was Renly and Stannis, Rob and Robert, Jamie Lannister and Jon Snow. And I've always, always been fascinated by the fact she pairs Jamie and Jon because that's why would she? Renly and Stannis, they're brothers, they're right outside the door. That makes sense. She's pairing them together. Rob and Robert, okay, names are similar, but also both kings. Jamie Lannister and Jon Snow, why is she connecting those two? Apart from the J letter at the beginning of their names. Other than that, there's not a lot to connect them. But there is, actually. It's just that Catelyn shouldn't really be considering that. They are really mirror images of each other, other ends of the spectrum. There's a King's Guard and a Night's Watchman, an heir and a bastard. And so much of both their characters is about the stuff that kings are made of and about the difficulty of following oaths and how you can get dragged both ways. There's a lot of similarities between Jamie and John, but I don't think that's what Catelyn's on about here, so it's just really interesting that those two get paired together. And she sees Aya with them in this face of the warrior just for a second, and that's probably about the most we ever get out of the Seven. Or maybe it's just Catelyn's own subconscious, um, her own subconscious perceptions becoming clear. She sees Aya for what she truly is. That'd be nice if it was just Catelyn. Okay, we've got another quote from Catelyn here. It says, she told herself that there had been no time, but the truth was that food had lost its savour in a world without Ned. When they took his head off, they killed me too. I'm pretty sure, uh, I don't know if this is official, but I'm going to declare it so, that every Catelyn chapter in this book has at least one absolutely devastating line in it. And to read, when they took his head off, they killed me too. Yeah, that is devastating. If you need, need a dictionary, you're looking at devastating. Don't bother. Just read that quote. If you remember from last week, we got that one combined with like her thinking that winter has already come. Oh, Catelyn, at, the, at this time, her mindset. And not that it's going to get any better, of course. It's not it's going to get so much worse. Not very far in the future. Oh, my heart goes out to her. I won't go on about how much I love Catelyn as a chapter. I think you know by now. Another quote, again from this sept scene. Would I do any less for my own? And it's Catelyn's thoughts. They're, they're mirroring Ned's own about when he confronts the truth about Cersei. As soon as he finds out what Jamie and Cersei did back at Winterfell, and this is, he's in uh, the King's Landing at this time, he thinks, well, I, I probably would do that as well, actually. And Catelyn is here thinking the exact same thing. So it's really, really interesting. And there's some fantastic comparison between Catelyn and Cersei as mothers in this chapter and about those lengths that they would go to to protect their children. There's also a certain irony that Cersei didn't actually order the killings of Jon Arryn or Ned or Bran, but all three, are, all three are being laid at her feet, both in this chapter and elsewhere. So that's quite interesting. Not that I'm trying to excuse Cersei. She's, she's bad, don't worry, but uh, she didn't actually do that stuff. Okay, let's talk about uh, moving on to her conversation with Renly now. So, Renly, he's still insistent that Sir Barry is with Stannis. He's been told he's not. Well, he doesn't think he is anyway. But does he really think that both Stannis and Barry would lead an army against such apparently uneven odds without a backup plan? We know Stannis' resume. We know Barry's experience. Renly should probably be thinking, hmm, I should be looking for like other factors here because they seem to not be too worried. But um, that's kind of beyond Renly's scope of thinking, I think. So as wonderful as Catelyn's call for a great council would be, I can't imagine a world in which Rob's lords would have agreed to it anyway, or, or anyone else, to be fair. But it is fun to imagine a, a Catelyn-Rob double team that makes the uh, Northern lords accept, because a great council would be good. Unfortunately, even though Renly would have had a pretty good 
pretty good shout at succeeding at the vote because he's popular for some reason. He completely shuts the idea down. And the last policy of his life was complete refusal at the idea of peace, something that Rob is still actively working for. Instead, Renly insists on continuing a brutal and costly war because he just, he just fancies it for some reason. And you kind of realise how much more... You kind of realise how much more brutal the war can get when Renly starts buying into his own PR story about the coming battle. He doesn't listen to Randall Tarley, he doesn't listen to his more experienced commanders about like them march, uh, charging into the sun, etc. He's just, nah, just let it be chaos. Just It won't matter, we'll win eventually. So he's not even bothered about tactics that might make the battle go easier, might spare some of his men, might make it a bit easier on their men. He's like, no, just chuck them all in. It doesn't matter how many die because we will end up with more in the future it really i'm not going to get into it now but it's weird to me how many people seem to support renly as a good person or a possibly good king i do not see it but that, that's an argument for another day so in the beginning of this chapter the color is is thin and devoid everything's very gray and lifeless until catelyn enters renly's tent which is full of fiery candles and colorful armor i think george goes out of his way to make this distinction lifeless outside lots of life inside and yet still the color the armor the fiery candles does not protect from a creature of literally no color that comes and ends this chapter ironically right in front of a member of the rainbow guard a woman wearing colored armor in brienne is she wearing it at the time no i guess she's not wearing it at the time is she because she has to leave it behind but she has colored armor is my point no uh, i'm not certain on this but renly's wound is similar to J for flowers in that like his throat just gets cut. I think I'm right in saying that. Not only that, but he says cold. If you remember, Waymar Royce was very cold when he died. And armour apparently means as much to the shadows as it does to the others. Just some food for thought there. Some similarities between others and shadows, apparently. We have to give a shout out to Sir Robar, who seems a decent sort in all situations. But unfortunately, he doesn't make it out of this uh, little situation here. And that's two Royces down in two books. Both of them just trying to uphold their oaths. So, hey, well done, Sir Robar. I'm sorry you had to go that way. I hadn't considered this much before, but I suppose if Stannis slash Melisandre don't go ahead with the Shadow Assassin, then Stannis almost certainly dies in the battle. Renly, before he dies, he seems confident that Stannis will go down because he's saying, like, don't desecrate his body and stuff. So I don't think there's any... He hasn't given the order to capture Stannis. He seems pretty confident Stannis will die. He's not going to let him live. So really, Stannis is actually kind of up against the wall in this situation. In the end, Renly's army is tied together by as much as his armour was once the Shadow Sword comes. It falls apart in an instant, as open as Renly's neck. And again, nothing is certain in this world, as Renly and his peach well know. It's superb that the end of the chapter brings light and colour back into the world as Catelyn flees. It's almost as if the game has been unpaused. But that only serves to unnerve Catelyn more. And like I say, this is a really good chapter. One of my favourites. And that makes it a really good point to end today. Well done, everybody. We've made it halfway through Clash of Kings. I think we've gone we've gone six weeks straight, haven't we? We haven't had any breaks. And I believe we'll be back next week, obviously, as he's in the share on the Sunday with the main show. And I'm here to pick up these scraps and scrolls. So, thank you for tuning in. Thank you for listening. Like I say, I have a lot of work to do on that castle's book and I must offer my thanks and sincere gratitude again to everyone who's liked and retweeted and commented and said well done and everything else. It is very much appreciated and it makes all the hard work worth it. I will be back next week, of course, 
with part seven of another six chapters. So until then, see you later. Have a good time and goodbye.